Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. We are building our business around serving our customers' renewable energy needs. And a lot of times our customers may be utilities. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior, and thank you for investing your most precious resource here with me today. That is your time. Today's entrepreneur has discovered solar as a way to marry his calling with his craft. Chad Farrell was originally involved in real estate redevelopment in Vermont after college, where he realized that solar is a perfect complement for the brownfields, landfills, and other problem sites that just aren't suitable for traditional development. As a result, Encore Renewable Energy, the company that he founded, has become a trusted and go-to development partner for some of the largest companies and projects in the region. Here today, as we discuss his path to building this benefit corporation and get inspired by his story of becoming the largest solar developer in Vermont. Many thanks once again to my friend Lauren Glickman over at Renewcom for connecting us with Chad. You know, you'll find over 170 inspiring and influential leaders' stories at mysuncast.com, home to the Suncast catalog. While you're there, do sign up for our newsletter. You'll get the announcement of when each episode has gone live. You can check out our Suncast tribe where you can learn more about how to be more involved with our community. But for now, get ready for another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warrior, today's guest has been developing solar for more than a decade, and he successfully built a business in one of the smallest corners of the market. You know, his story is one of perseverance, but it's also one of business savvy and the power of staying local. Chad Farrell is the founder and CEO of Encore Renewable Energy based in Burlington, Vermont, home of some of the tastiest beer you will ever enjoy. He's a developer, project manager, and environmental engineer, nearly two and a half decades of professional experience. And through Encore, he's led efforts to build 65 different commercial scale solar projects worth nearly $100 million in value. And he's on too many executive boards to name here. Today, we're going to learn what makes Chad tick. Chad, welcome to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. It is a uh, honor and a privilege to be here. I'm excited uh, for the discussion. Well, quick shout out to your friend and mine, Lauren Glickman who put us together. She is uh, one of those insiders in the industry that seems to know everyone. So just a hat tip to Lauren. If you don't know Lauren, you really should get to know her. She knows so much about how this industry ticks and how to get eyeballs and earballs focused on on your story. So thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren, for me as well. Uh, Lauren and her team at Renewcom are doing tremendous work for us and others in the clean energy space, uh, really helping us get the word out. We've been working with Renewcom for not even a year yet, and we're already seeing ROI on that investment. It's been, it's been tremendous. Well, she's really focused on, uh, on your story, and I want to I go down that path a little bit. Uh, you know, I think that you've got an interesting background, principally an engineer turned business owner. Tell me a little bit about 
your first exposure to the idea of clean energy or solar and how or when did you decide that this is where you're going to take your path, your career? My pathway into this industry is, is perhaps uh, slightly different than others. My background is in environmental engineering um, for the first 15 years of my career. I guess 18 or so, if you include graduate school, um, I was focused on characterizing and cleaning up hazardous waste sites. So these were sites that were contaminated uh, in some form or fashion um, by underground storage tanks, uh, surficial leaks, whatever the source of contamination may have been, the result was contaminated soil and groundwater, which render those properties much more difficult to redevelop than your typical uh, greenfield parcel. I ultimately decided that I wanted to try to to become a, a developer, uh, and in th that case, a more traditional real estate developer. We wanted to repurpose hazardous waste sites to have a higher and better use, but it was generally in the form of more traditional real estate. So before I started Encore, I knew that I needed to hone my skills in project management. I had understood project management. I had worked on large, you know, multi-million dollar environmental cleanup projects, but perhaps not from the senior development position. So I went and worked with a group in Boston by the name of Black Point and worked with a, with a gentleman by the name of John Gaston, who had project managed really, really large scale environmental cleanup projects. You know, this was like the Anacostia River in Washington, D.C., the Southeast Federal Center in D.C., the Fox River in Wisconsin, big, big, big hundreds of millions of dollars worth of environmental cleanup projects that needed a sophisticated highly professional project management team to pull off. So I worked with John and his team for a little over a year, year and a half, and then ultimately decided that I didn't want to move to Boston permanently. You know, Burlington, Vermont is home. So we parted ways and I started Encore, thinking that I could bring those skills to, to bear on our own. But again, it was more focused on you know, utilizing these contaminated sites as a platform for redevelopment of more traditional real estate activity. And if memory serves, Encore was originally called Encore Redevelopment. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were originally Encore Redevelopment, and that was our focus until, and I'll never forget this day, driving up Route 89 between Montpelier and Burlington, and I hear on the radio that Lehman Brothers just failed. And I say, that's not normal. Right. You don't hear that news every day. You know, what's coming down the pike? And I think we all know what happened yeah. coming down the pike shortly thereafter. Did you have positions on property at the time? We had some projects in motion. We did not have positions on those pieces of property. We were doing those projects more from a consulting basis yep. early on. And at the same time, or roughly around the same time, you know, Barack Obama was elected president and he came in on the heels of financial collapse. And so the stimulus package and the ARRA program had all kinds of focus on renewable energy and energy efficiency and other things related to 21st century forms of, of energy um, generation and distribution. So, you know, the proverbial light bulb went off over my head. At the same time, the governor of the state of Vermont, Peter Shumlin, uh, had made renewable energy a cornerstone of his administration's platform. So it was sort of, you know, an understanding that, you know, things were coalescing around this renewable energy concept. 
And I said, well, what a great idea. You know, solar projects take up a decent amount of land space. Wouldn't it be great to host, you know, solar projects on these environmentally challenged pieces of properties like brownfields and landfills? You know, in the case of a landfill, there's really nothing of higher and better use. You know, our competing uses had, had been to date, you know, golf courses and dog parks. Um, you know, in the case of a golf course, maybe there's some maybe there's some upside in terms of property tax revenue. But for the most part, at that scale, solar was the highest and best use. So we wanted to push a vision of utilizing these, again, underutilized properties for host sites for solar. I'm going to back up to 2006, 2007, because part of your history is the decision, the inflection point where you make a conscious decision to seek additional skill sets. A lot of entrepreneurs would say, no, I'm going to jump right in. I can hire my ignorance away. You did something that I think is uh, really interesting, something that I've seen multiple times from skilled CEOs, and that is you cataloged a deficit of skills and decided which ones you were going to attack. Project management is one that is very easily hired. Why did you decide to go build that skill set? And was there any outside influence that helped you navigate that decision? I'd say I wanted to master that skill set because I knew I needed to eventually teach it. I firmly believe that we all need to be teachers in any industry as we become more senior in that industry or we become more senior in a company. Leadership is about teaching and it's about learning how to become a teacher. John Gaston was a great teacher in terms of project management. He had done it for 30 40 years at that point, and he had done it at the highest level, at least in that environmental restoration marketplace that I had tread in to that point in my career. Was he a standout that you said, I want to go be under his tutelage? I had worked with him at a previous company that I had worked at, um, which was a, a large, for Vermont standards at least, a large environmental engineering firm in Montpelier by the name of the Johnson Company, mm-hmm. which was started by a gentleman by the name of Martin Johnson who was a legend in environmental circles in the Northeast. He just so happened to live in Vermont. And I remember Martin specifically saying, I was actually Martin's final hire. He retired shortly after I came on in 2000. I remember him saying, just because we live in Vermont doesn't mean we can't be experts in what we're expert in. And he was able to secure projects. I mean, we worked with Green Mountain Power locally, We worked with a lot of industrial and manufacturing entities in Vermont and northern New York and New Hampshire, but we also worked on projects all around the world. And he was a brilliant mind who thought differently. He um, brought creative solutions to the table that others hadn't thought about. And that's what he was paid for, not the fact that maybe his billing rate was a little cheaper because his overhead was a little lower than his competitors in New York or Boston. So I brought that lesson, you know, the we can kind of do this wherever we are early, like long before sort of the internet age and remote workplaces and things like that. He, he said, if you're good, you can do it anywhere. Wow. So he was working with this gentleman, John Gaston for a while because Martin knew he was a brilliant scientific mind but he wasn't the project manager that others were. So again, I think it pulls at the strings of collaboration, which has been a, a common thread in my career. You know, figures like that really taught me the value of you know, collaborative teamwork 
and uh, everybody working together with a systematized process that everybody understands. Who was your hero growing up? Well, my hero more recently in adulthood, I think has been Yvonne Quinard of Patagonia. I have a tremendous amount of respect for, you know, obviously the company that he's built in Patagonia, but perhaps more importantly, how he's done it. You know, here is a mountaineer, you know, beach bum, mountain bum, who is really good at what he did in terms of manufacturing pitons that, Mm -hmm. you know, you pound into a rock and climb it. But he figured out really early on that it was about his people that were going to get him and his company further. So he always treated his employees extremely well. And we have tried to employ some of those, uh, some of the tenets that you, you see in his book, uh, Let My People Go Surfing, which is one of my favorite all-time business books, mm. because I think it does. It speaks to looking at business from a, a different perspective and a different lens. Ultimately, it was looking at business as a force for good. Mm-hmm. And how can he magnify that message through his company that the world can be a better place through the pursuit of, of better business practices? Are there any particular role models growing up that made an impact on you? One of the biggest mentors of my early childhood, perhaps it's later childhood because it, it, it draws from a time when I was in high school, um, my lacrosse coach in high school, a guy by the name of Jack O'Brien was fundamental, I think, in shaping me as a young adult and ultimately an adult. Coach O'Brien taught the value of always pursuing excellence, of always pursuing accomplishment and at the expense of flash or style. He really was all about the fundamentals. And he was a strict adherent to the concept of team. And team is bigger than any one of us as players. A good example of that was, you know, his insistence that nobody shoot the ball underhand ever, no flashy behind the back shots. It was always a bounce pass because a bounce or a bounce shot because a bounce shot was the greatest way to ensure that the goalie, there would be a little bit more variable nature in a way that the ball was going to be coming towards the goalie and therefore more likelihood that that shot would go in. He had a policy of no swearing on the lacrosse field. So you had a bunch of 17, 18 year old boys from Northwestern Boston, Massachusetts, running around these fields saying shoot and darn and drat and getting into scrums and going for loose ground balls and, you know, saying shucks when you missed it. It was remarkable, but he got us all on board, believing in that vision. And we ultimately won the state championship. So yeah, I'd say he was pretty transformational. As a renewable energy company, really as any kind of company, project management based, focused on the construction industry, margins aren't necessarily that high. You have to make decisions on where to put effort and, and profit. Yet you have chosen an organizational structure and that in, in a benefit corporation that doesn't necessarily track towards the, the profitability. Uh, it doesn't in itself attract different, different money types uh, necessarily. So I'd like to hear from your perspective how, why is this important? Why is being a B Corp helpful for you? And, and is there something beyond the idea of business being a force for good? So we became a B Corp in 2016 as a means, I think, to codify our beliefs, which have always been 
consistent with the with the triple bottom line philosophy. I think it's helped us immensely. You know, transparency is one of the key tenets, right? So how you manage your business, how you engage with your subcontractors, how you handle your employees. We found that you know, having a, a greater degree of transparency has actually helped us increase sales. Some of our project partners will notice, and, and these could be municipalities in which we're looking to develop a solar project. This can be financiers that we're looking to engage with. This could be equipment providers. All those folks know that B Corp means that we're going to pursue business with the highest degree of integrity. And in a lot of cases, that means the highest degree of transparency, again, to the extent that we can in consideration of the competitive nature of our business. But that transparency and that integrity, I know, has allowed us to sign additional projects. I've been across the table where the counterparty says, well, we see you guys are a B Corp. That says a lot about you and your company and those are the kind of companies that we want to deal with. And I was a skeptic. Uh, I sure. love the idea of a B Corp. I applaud and have been a part of B Corps. But to be able to track one-to-one and say, no, in fact, I can point to benefit of being a benefit corporation that tracks to my bottom line, that I can say to my shareholders, wait, hold up. All this investment, uh, the noise making, the news, the, the newsworthiness is is good, but here's like where it actually is coming in as a return to you. Another area where we can point to this investment being a positive one for Encore is, is in employee engagement and employee happiness, which ultimately speaks to employee retention. We've put programs in place and, and we, we're learning a lot, right? We're going just tomorrow. I'm heading down to Southern New Hampshire for the regional B Corp gathering. The national gathering, which was in New Orleans last September, are great opportunities to network with other folks that believe in the same principles of using business as a force for good. And we gain so many great ideas and so many, so many other supporting uh, organizations who have been there, done that, set up these programs. And, you know, it could be an employee wellness program. It could be the way that we're structuring our operating agreement. It could be, you know, thinking about things like um, employee stock ownership programs. There's just so many resources out there. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of these companies have really engaged, motivated, passionate, highly functional workforces because they've made the investment. You know, I think it's important to also suggest that it's not for everybody. There is the concept of, as much as there is a concept of greenwashing out there, there's beginning to be this concept of uh, bee washing, right? Where, you know, Forbes and other fast company and other large publications are putting out more and more articles about impact investing or socially responsible business, B Corp. And there is this concept that, you know, at some point there, you know, we need to be careful about who we let into the tent, right? Because it is harder. It does take more effort to manage a company that is a B Corp than wouldn't otherwise be the case, but we, we feel it's tremendously worthwhile. Chad, I agree with you. And I appreciate you sharing the tangible ways that it is beneficial. Are there other examples of perhaps philosophies or, or actions within your company that you hold as counterintuitive or perhaps even controversial to sort of the industry norm? 
You know, I think that collaborative spirit can sometimes be a little bit out of left field at times, I feel. For example, we are building our business around serving our customers' renewable energy needs. And a lot of times our customers may be utilities. And there is this inherent tension in the market between, you know, the developers or the IPPs and the utilities. I believe that we were all better working together, that we have skills and opportunities in the private sector that can help drive positive outcomes in the public sector or the utility sector. So I am a proponent of rabid collaboration amongst uh, utilities and independent power producers. That may go against some other thinking uh, you know, within the industry, but I really do truly believe that in order to get to where we absolutely need to go as an industry, you know, as, as a society, we need to uh, be working with our friends at the utilities as opposed to always against them. Help me understand why go after these redevelopment projects within the context of solar. And I understand the pivot from redevelopment as a philosophy to solar. And that makes a lot of sense to me. As I've gotten to know your business, you perpetuated it. You've found a real niche and a stronghold here. I'm wondering if it doesn't go a little bit deeper than just there's, you know, there's riches in the niches, as they say. Within the context of that, I'm going to follow up around land use, but I have a feeling that you might go there uh, to begin with. You know, we like to pride ourselves uh, in, you know, being able to go that extra mile, being able to, you know, wring value out of, uh, you know, a project that otherwise looks overly challenged to the average uh, firm out there. I mean, I think we are looking at these projects as part of our long game. There are quick hitter projects that are out there that can be done. We focus on brownfields and landfills and carports and, and, and rooftops, but I'd be lying if I said that was 100% of our portfolio. So we have done some greenfield projects. We have noticed that those projects are oftentimes a little bit more difficult to permit sometimes because you do have you know, a more aggressive, uh, you know, set of opponents, um, whether that be regulatory, whether that be neighbors, whether that be the, the local community. But I think the long game aspect of being able to take on these challenging projects and, and really make them work is only going to speak to our ability to take on whatever's next in terms of a challenge, because there's going to be, we need to continue to innovate. We cannot imitate if we're not out there innovating around the next sort of, you know, policy, around the next technology, you know, sort of where the general public is is interested in seeing us cite these projects, which let's face it, is closer to load, is closer to urban centers, is on otherwise undevelopable pieces of land. Because whether, you know, whether that land could be used for commercial real estate, whether it could be used for residential real estate, whether it could be used for agriculture, there could be higher and better use out there. Now, again, on that same topic, we have been able to make the argument that, you know, we've done some projects on farms and we'll talk to the farmer and the farmer will say, well, you know, we'll say, look, it's ideally cited on this portion of your farm. The farmer will say, well, I've got that back piece over there that it's wet, but it's not a wetland or it's, it's rocky, but it's not ledge. Can you go there? So we're essentially making that same argument in that we are repurposing the least productive portion of that farmer's land 
for a higher and better use. I'm curious if there's a moment between 2008, the real kind of pivot for you, and 2019, where you really started to feel like you'd wrapped your head around the development game. In 2009, there was a feed-in tariff opportunity in the state of Vermont. It was a standard offer program, the only uh, statewide feed-in tariff program in the country. So there was a set price, and that price was, was fairly aggressive because it was in, the program was intended to jumpstart the marketplace here in Vermont. These PPAs were priced at $0.30 cents a kilowatt hour initially. So there was in, inevitably a lot of interest in that program. So Encore... I think at that point, I had three interns at the time, and uh, we had we were running around the state of Vermont optioning brownfield and landfill sites because we thought those would be great participants in this new program. That program went to a lottery because it was oversubscribed. It's like as, Illinois. <laughs> as, yep. Just like we saw in Illinois. We didn't win any. We had five sites that we put into this uh, lottery. I believe there were 90 some odd applicants. Half of them were bogus, right? You would have people submitting 2.2 megawatt projects on a you know three-acre parcel. So there was attrition and a number of these projects fell out, but we were left, I think, on... We were like the next runner-up after it was... After all the attrition was done, you know, that was a hard reality, right? We had spent all this time developing these projects and, you know, we were going to have essentially nothing to show for it. At the same time, the state of Vermont, shortly prior to that, initiated a virtual net metering program. So, you know, we were able to pivot and say, hey, okay, well, let's look at the economics of this virtual net metering program. How does it work? How are we going to sell net metering credits to customers? What, what kind of customers do we need? What size projects do we need? And, you know, I just remember thinking, oh, well, there's a lifeline. There is something because we had learned, we had invested in understanding how solar projects cash flow and understanding what it takes to design, develop and build them. We had some key, you know, folks on our team that we could rely on, um, kind of been there, done that. But the virtual net metering program that Vermont put forward sort of was that plan B, because now we had all these tools in the toolbox and we realized we could use them for something other than just these large standard offer projects. So in 2010, we delivered our first uh, virtual net metering project. It was a 40-kilowatt project here in Burlington. I think that year we did three projects, some total of 83 kilowatts. You know, and here we are. You and three interns. We and three interns. And here we are. We're a CNI solar developer. Wait, this is what year? 2010. 10, wow. And I remember those deals back then, they were, I used to call them Frankenstein deals mm. because you needed a little bit of everything That's to make right. those projects work. You needed a mission-driven sponsor investor that was willing to take a 4% return. You needed a grant or two or three. You needed 0% debt from a community development financing institution. You needed all these things. And then maybe you could get a 50 or 100 kilowatt project to work. I want to pause for a second and ask what I'm probably, what I can bet at least a few of my astute listeners are thinking right now. If I'm doing the math, right? This is three, almost four years in for Encore. I ran a solar company and I know that 83 kilowatts doesn't keep the lights on, even with three interns. How are you feeding your family at this time? Those were hard years, Nico. No question about it. There was uh, a little bit of savings that I had saved up. You know, I liquidated a 401k 
sold a house, but was meaning to sell the house and rolled some of those profits into Encore. You know, at the same time, learned how to raise a little bit of capital, you know, went from friends, family, and fools to, you know, some higher net worth local investors who were interested in what we were doing, then moved towards, you know, more traditional forms of finance. But, you know, kind of, you know, continuing to leverage the recent success that we had had on, on projects to borrow more. And, you know, now we're at the point where we're still doing that. I mean, it's just bigger numbers. <laughs> you get to pay uh, yourself a bigger salary A little now. bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. when things go right. Yeah, right? that's right. <laughs> you've been at this for almost 15 years. What would you say are the hallmarks that you've noticed of, of a developing market? As you and your team scan the horizon, you got some really sharp guys on your team. What does business development look like for a development team like yours that really has their process in place? Well, I think it is about staying somewhat targeted, saying, you know, staying within your wheelhouse. Um, you know, we've seen things like the Illinois marketplace open up and it's real tempting to go try to throw our hat into that ring because we see it's going to be lucrative. It's going to be a large market, but at the end of the day, it's not completely in our wheelhouse, at least as presently constituted. We realize that the Vermont market, while it's been a good market to springboard out of, while it's been a good, great market to learn how to design, develop, and finance and construct solar projects, it's, it's you know, we, we're going to need to do more in other markets. A, as a risk mitigation tool, and B, just because the scale here, I don't think will allow us to grow to the degree we want to. But we want to stay regional. So we're you know, we have a few things moving in New York. We just recently put a pin in the map in New Hampshire, although that market, although it would be a natural progression for us, uh, has been slower to develop than others in the Northeast. We're real excited about, you know, the state of Maine. Uh, we're uh, excited about Connecticut catching up at some point. So we keep our eyes on all of the markets, uh, mainly in the Northeast, and we have, you know, developed go-to-market strategies for all of them. And we've, we've done that. But I think we do need to realize we're, what we're not. And we're not a residential solar development company, and we're not a utility scale solar development company. So we're firmly within the one to five to 10 megawatt per project scale. And we're also realizing that in advanced markets such as Vermont, where we've achieved a decent solar penetration, we need to be bringing battery storage to the table on all of our projects. So we've spent the last probably two years, again, going to school, learning who the players are in the marketplace, learning how the financiers are looking at these projects, learning what the utilities are seeing for price points, and trying to thread that needle between you know, the desire of the utility to have battery storage to even out the distribution profile of these intermittent generators, and you know, and 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 the the industry itself, and what's available technologically, what's uh, financeable, and what can ultimately get built. Is there anything that you, in that coaching role, that you advise Jake Payne, your development team, to be on the lookout for? Is there a filter that you have for how and why you'd go into a new market? Well, I think first and foremost, there's got to be the political will. And that's where we're seeing New Hampshire maybe be a little bit slower than some of the other states. And that's why we're seeing Maine finally kind of become a, a more viable market. 
So I think there's, there has to be leadership at the executive level within each of these markets. I think there has to be some level of interest among the legislative community in those, in those markets. And then, you know, I think we know now where projects are most valuable. So there are certain filters that we utilize when we're using GIS tools to screen or what we call greenfielding for sites. Even if they're brownfields or landfills, it's still greenfielding when you're casting a wide net, looking for the right sites in the right locations, and then casting, you know, casting about for landowners that would be interested in hosting a solar farm. Are you a solar contractor who wishes you could simply cut down on those time-consuming site visits? Our friends over at Aurora Solar, an NREL validated sales and design software, can help you with that. Determine solar access, design the PV system, forecast energy production and bill savings, and present a compelling proposal, all without leaving the office. You know there's a special offer if you're a Suncast listener, and clearly you are. For a limited time, you can get a free Aurora Solar license with the first annual license that you purchase. That's right, a BOGO. Buy one, get one. Visit Aurora Solar at info.aurorasolar.com forward slash suncast to learn more. You can also jump to the mysuncast.com website and click on the Aurora Solar banner on the homepage. Hey, I just wanted to give you a heads up that if you missed our first ever Ask Me Anything, it went live last Thursday with Jonathan Budd, CEO and founder of Power. We walked through the entire power compensation model, answered a whole lot of questions from the audience about what power is, what it isn't, how it works, how you can learn more about it. So go to www.mysuncast.com and click on the register button there on the homepage and you'll be able to watch the replay of that. Also be on the lookout for upcoming news on our events that are about to take place. Now in less than 60 days, we will have Solar Power International, the largest trade show in the United States for solar and storage. It's Smart Energy Week in Salt Lake City. There are some very exciting partnerships taking place that I'm going to be announcing in the coming weeks. And I wanted to also pre-announce the next pre-charge event, which is going to take place October 16th in Miami, ahead of the Caribbean Renewable Energy Forum Conference that is an annual must-attend if you're doing business in the Caribbean. You'll find out more over at mysuncast.com. Just check out the events section where you can learn more. But now... Back to this week's episode with Chad Farrell. Looking at your resume, you're involved in a ton of boards. Now, either that's a very productive hobby for you, (laughs) or as I suspect, you have a keen understanding of the power of lobby as a pull strategy for your business. Can we talk a bit about that? Yes. With respect to lobby, uh, we do believe that it's uh, tremendously important to have a line of communication with legislators who are responsible for crafting the legislation that will help move our our industry forward. We have been in the trenches for a few years now. I I think we do offer a trusted voice from the industry as to what works and what doesn't. I think we're all interested in, in delivering the lowest cost sources of renewable energy possible so as to more rapidly advance the energy transition. Lobbying efforts is a big part of that. If part of my job is to represent the company a little bit more so often than the folks that are really drilling down at the project level, 
that's been a fun and engaging and really satisfying portion of the job. Yeah, I would, I would suspect that given the amount of bureaucracy and, and just generally meetings that are required, I wouldn't expect that every executive is going to kind of, is going to yield to that sort of uh, request for time. But I admire the work that you do and the work that Costa has done as two examples of folks in the Northeast who give an extraordinary amount of time to ensure that someone with an inside voice is ushering the process of education along. And one of the things that I hope gets communicated here on Suncast often and loudly is in the broader fight, it's not enough to stand on the edge of the ring and clap and cheer and say, we're inside of the stadium, right? But those that are inside the octagon and the octagon, to be clear, in the United States where the vast majority of the effort that has yielded the fruit that we all get to eat is centered around policy. Policy drives just about everything in our industry. Yeah. And we feel it's really important to give back to our industry. We cannot be bystanders in, in, this, in this exercise. We feel compelled to participate. We feel compelled to lead. Mm-hmm. That's not just me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only one on the legislative policy committee for whether that be Clean Energy New Hampshire, um, NICEA, Rev here in Vermont, we have uh, a number of folks that are actively engaged in those policy-related issues based on interest and based on proclivity, based on experience. So we certainly all help row that boat, not just me. Is there something that consistently when people come to your team, you have to teach them that they didn't know before? Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the main things that we as an industry need to address in the really, really near future is how we can utilize this industry as a, as a means of, of rising all boats in a higher tide. We need to be able to figure out how to deliver solar and renewable energy to all, to low and moderate income folks, to commercial institutions that may not have the greatest credit quality, we need to figure out how renewables can move beyond, you know, the perception that it is a wealthy person's game to something that can benefit all of us. And we're seeing that in a transition to, you know, weatherization efforts. Uh, we're seeing that in utilization of, you know, heat pump programs. Uh, we're seeing that in um, battery storage, residential battery storage programs. And we're seeing that in a number of projects that have come online, a number of which we've developed, where we're working with low and moderate income housing providers to really be able to drive the message that renewables are not just for the exclusive few, renewables are for all. Have you carried that value of coaching in your life beyond sports, beyond college? How's how's that transition to mentorship as an adult? That's a great question. You know, uh, the first thing I think about was going back to graduate school where I got to, you know, in lieu of paying tuition, uh, I was uh, I was a teaching assistant uh, and I was able to you know, mentor a number of college students in civil engineering through a number of really interesting subject topics. I would also say that as I started Encore, I realized that just by throwing myself out there, in a new industry at the time, new-ish, people sought me out. Suddenly I was getting emails from people like Jerry Greenfield from Ben & Jerry's. No way. Um, Jeffrey Hollander, who 
started seventh generation. Um, you know, these were, you know, more seasoned entrepreneurs, as you suggest, uh, who kind of had been there, done that, had taken all that risk earlier in their lives. And I think reached out for me for two reasons. A, they were interested in the investment opportunities associated with this new and developing and higher risk field. But B, they were interested in us, you know, from a human standpoint. They saw in me and some of the earlier folks here, you know, the hustle and the the risk that we were taking on. And it perhaps reminded them of earlier parts of their career. And they were just willing to give of their time and their expertise and their support. And, you know, all in the while we're doing projects together and we're talking them through how these investments work, I'm gaining so much experience in learning and seeing how they go about their business and finding how important passion is and and doing business the right way, right? I mean, that's a lot of where our B Corp philosophies were founded. Those those individuals were instrumental in creating Vermont as a capital of impact investing and sustainably responsible business. Can you recall from Jerry or Jeffrey some of the ways that they they spoke to you or some of the things they might have said that left an impact on you? I mean, both of those gentlemen are tremendous human beings. And I just remember both of them looking me in the eye and saying, how are you doing? Like, how are you doing, man? Like, you got a lot going on here. You got young kids and, you know, you're in the trenches. How are you doing as a human being? And I, I'll never forget that. Another mentor of mine uh, is a gentleman by the name of Will Rapp. Uh, and Will started, uh, it was the first mail order gardening supply company in the country called Gardener Supply. They went on to transition out of that company through an ESOP, um, but he still remains active in all kinds of entrepreneurial activities. And his teaching and his tutelage of me continues to this day when I'm fortunate enough to get his time. But all three of those individuals really taught me the importance of doing business the right way, the importance of building a team, uh, the importance of you know, knowing what you know and, and relying on others for things that you don't know and be able to see beyond the immediate hardship. I think that was another blessing that you know, I was able to, uh, to gain from, from those interactions. So now as the CEO, with this tremendous mentorship and influence in your life, I'm curious how you give back. Where do you mentor? It could be within the context of Encore, it could just be broad, more broadly. Within the context of Encore, you know, we still believe in the power of teaching. We, you know, we have an internship program. Maddie, who you met earlier, she's a rising junior at Cornell, doing great work for us around GIS mapping and, and greenfielding of new sites under the direction of Payne, you know, who is a 25-year-old young professional who is learning how to teach her because he's learning from what he gets from Jesse, his, his boss and his supervisor. So yes, I think within the context of Encore, the concept of teaching and, you know, getting things that are out of any one person's brain and trying to get them into as many <laughs> brains on the team as possible, that's only going to make us better, stronger, faster, more successful. And then outside of Encore, whether that be through work that we do with the university 
work that we do through um, some of these boards that I sit on. And I think finally, through the work that, you know, we're all doing collectively as an industry to educate legislators, you know, we have a citizen legislature here, right? They, they need to be taught the importance and we need to break things down in simple ways that, you know, as you and I, as fathers understand, you need to sometimes break down complex things for, for kids. You have a very capable and talented development team. I'm wondering as the chief executive officer, if you've developed within your team, a filter of what a good developer looks like and how to hire for that. I would say one of the most important telltale signs of a good developer in the solar space, perhaps in any space, perhaps especially in the solar space, because we do, you know, we look at so many projects, we take certain projects down the pathway, the door gets slammed in our face every once in a while. There's good news, there's bad news. So the concept of someone with a high degree of emotional intelligence, those are going to be good developers generally. So again, that's why we practice emotional intelligence. That's why we've invested in trainings. You can tell that. You can generally tell that on the first interview. So we look for a high degree of emotional intelligence. I think we also look for folks that know what they're good at because across the development process for an origination platform such as Encore, you know, there are a number of different skill sets that are required from the upfront sales and marketing to the more technical design and engineering that's required to the development, which is somewhat of a herding cats type exercise, to finance, to construction. So we like to know, you know, we like to have a team that is well-rounded and, and covers all of those bases. At the same time, we like to have folks that are emotionally intelligent enough to stretch and pivot and fill in when necessary. But I would say emotional intelligence is, is a key consideration for what we look for when we hire. And we have a very robust hiring practice. We've gone through this a number of times now, and I think we all realize, as, as I have for a while now, that it's really important to take your time hiring. It's one of the most important things you can do. You know, the concept of hire slow and fire fast is, is one that we're very well aware of. And fortunately, we've hired slow enough and well enough that we haven't had to fire fast. Chad, last question here on the solar industry writ large uh, before I ask a few personal questions about just the way you operate. What has you most excited right now in the clean energy industry? What's next? What corner is you looking around? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably not a very unique perspective, but the, uh, you know, the coming electrification of everything I think is, is and, and, and now based on economics, as well as environmental factors, I think the environmental factors have been well known for a long while now. But the fact that we are now able to compete in a number of markets head to head with incumbent generation industries is tremendously exciting. So I think the coming electrification of everything as we move towards electrification of our transportation fleet, as we look towards electrification of our thermal side, I think that is where we're most, in, we're most excited. And we feel that storage combined with solar is going to really help us get there. So again, that's why we're actively you know, engaged, as a lot of our competitors are, in trying to figure out the storage element here, because I think we're going to need it. But once we deploy storage with wind and with solar, that's the future.
Is there anything in particular around storage that you see as cutting edge? And is there a market to watch that maybe has you thinking, how can we apply that in Vermont? We're primarily involved in storage projects that are in front of the meter, but I think there's a lot of activity and interest in the behind the meter stuff. That is, I think, going to really sort of drive rate design and, and other larger issues in the industry. So while we're not actively engaged in all that many projects, because our clients are typically at the utility scale, I think there's a tremendous uh, amount of innovation that's going to happen there. And that's going to really help move the market forward. Chad, I believe that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. I'd love to know, you mentioned one earlier, the founder of Patagonia. Are there other books that you've recommended or gifted often and why? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, Let My People Go Surfing, as you mentioned by Yvonne Quinard. I, I can't tell you how many times I've given that book as a gift. Always happy to do so because the lessons in that book are so tremendous. I just went back and reread a few chapters in Reinventing Fire by Amory Lovins. I think that's a bit of a tome for our industry, uh, at least that, you know, over the last number of years. Mm-hmm. Van Jones, a number of years ago, wrote a book called The Green Collar Economy, yeah. because I really think it was a prescient view of the importance of the renewable energy industry, energy efficiency, all these different new industries that have, that have sprung up in the last decade or two. And that are going to really form the backbone of the 21st century economy. He was saying something that I think we're all understanding now. He was saying this 10 years ago. I I don't think it's hyperbole to suggest that renewable energy, the green economy, it is the biggest economic opportunity of the 21st century. If I'm not mistaken, his organization is called Green for All, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, that was the, that says it right there. It says it right there. Yeah. And now we're talking about the Green New Deal. And yeah. I think a lot of those principles are founded upon the work that he and others had done right. in the earlier part of the century. The final book that has been transformational for me is a book called The Alchemist by Paulo oh, Coelho. Yeah. I think a lot of people may recognize that book. You know, it's the concept of a your personal legend. And your personal legend is what you've always wanted to accomplish. And I think that spoke to me as I was uh, embarking on my entrepreneurial adventure. And I found myself returning to that book time Mm. and time again, when I feel the need for a little bit of inspiration or a little bit of a perspective that's larger than, you know, what I'm looking at on a day-to-day basis. Chep, what habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your life? I think it's exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, as, um, as an athlete growing up, I've tried to continue those pursuits as an adult. I'm an avid skier. You know, in years past, I had used mountain biking as a means to stay in shape for mm-hmm. the ski season. And I'm increasingly finding it to be the opposite, that I'm <laughs> deriving the most pleasure out of mountain biking. Wow. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to live in a place where uh, there's, there's a tremendous amount of really terrific mountain biking. And skiing. Um, and skiing. <laughs> yep. So, you know, it offers a passion outside of work and family, something you can do alone or with friends. It's healthy. It gets you mm. out in nature and it's fun as hell. What's your morning routine? And uh, as a father, I'm actually curious what your evening routine is to set up for a morning that's productive. Sure. Yeah. I think well, the other aspect of all of this is getting good sleep, mm-hmm. right? So the routine in the evening is trying to find a, you know, after being with the kids, um, trying to find an hour or two to sort of just 
relax and read, or I like watching baseball. So sometimes I find myself doing that, catching up on a few things work-wise. Consistent bedtime? Try to have a consistent bedtime. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, try to have a consistent time that you get up as well. Yeah. My mom always told me, you got to make your bed every morning. This is the first thing you do. Yeah. Make your bed and you'll get out and face the day. Well, as we wrap up, where can people go to find you? Yeah. Email is is always a a great way to find me. I'm at Chad at Encore Renewable Energy. Um, I'm on Twitter at Chad underscore Farrell. And my LinkedIn profile is is the Encore name, uh, hashtag Encore Renewable Mm -hmm. Energy. Well, let's end today, Chad, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I think my bold prediction is that we realize an energy system that is dominated by distributed energy generation assets. And we do so a lot quicker than experts out there have predicted to be the case. And we're going to do that because the economics have shifted. There's going to be a price on carbon. There's going to be you know, continued concerns around fuel security. We're generating electricity from the sun and from the wind essentially out of thin air. We pair that with the rapid advancements in technology around data and around controls. And we have a completely revolutionized grid that is unlike anything folks are seeing out there today. And that we achieve that goal in my lifetime. And I'm no longer what can be considered a spring chicken. So it's (laughs) got to happen in the next 30 years. Chad Farrell is the CEO and founder of Encore Renewable Energy. We are hanging out here from headquarters in Burlington, Vermont. This has been a ton of fun, Chad. Thanks for joining us on Suncast. Awesome, Nico. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warrior, but please hang around and discuss some more with me. If not here, then over online. Chad and I would love to hear your feedback. We'd love to know what you thought of today's episode how you are growing, what questions you would have asked, Chad. Look for us on LinkedIn or Twitter and tag us. In fact, you can comment on the LinkedIn and Twitter posts that I've made for this episode. As always, you'll find those handles and other resources and highlights from these discussions on the blog at mysuncast.com. If you click on the listen link, that'll send you to the episodes page where you'll see show notes, social media, website links, and other goodies and book reviews and other stuff that we get into in each and every episode. While you're there... I'd like to encourage you to check out the Suncast Tribe. It's one of the ways that we help keep Suncast free to you, the listener. Along with wonderful sponsors like Aurora Solar, I am supported by fellow solar warriors and what I call trusted advisors, people who join our Suncast Tribe as a member and get access to uncut interviews, tribe exclusives, webinars that are forthcoming, trainings, and of course, while you're there, if you don't join the member section, please at least subscribe to our newsletter so you'll get notified when the next episode is out. And as always, I really truly value your investment of time here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.